Hello and welcome to episode 26 of the BBFC podcast, the first of the new year. Five, four, three, two, one, go. First of all, apologies in advance if you can hear any explosions. We're not in a battle zone, we're actually recording above our cinema. I'm Caitlin, I'm a film examiner. And I'm Debbie, I work for the operations team. In this episode, we'll be delving into some BBFC history with a look at the first half of James Furman's time as director. First, though, we'll take a look at some upcoming and recent BBFC news and events. Since the last episode of the podcast, Samsung announced it's bringing the Hopster app to its smart TV service. Hopster launched in March last year and only carries content rated U by the BBFC, making it a safe entertainment app for young children. And on the theme of safe content, Safer Internet Day, or SID, takes place on 10th of February this year with the theme of Let's Create a Better Internet Together. SID is a global annual event that sees hundreds of organisations promote safe, responsible and positive use of digital technology for children and young people. To support SID, we'll be launching a new video for young people. It'll explain how age ratings can help young people choose suitable content on VOD services. It'll also explain how mobile networks use BBFC guidelines to filter online content. Plus, we'll also talk about our pilot to age-rate online music videos. You can find out how to take part in SID by visiting www.saferinternet.org. I think our participation in this is interesting too, the idea that we're providing a video giving young people themselves information about our age ratings rather than targeting that information just at their parents. I guess young people now are taking more control of their own viewing, so it's great that they will understand how we make our decisions and how that information can help them too. Yeah, I mean, we do have a lot of useful information about films on our website, like we explain how decisions are made by publishing BBFC Insight. It's useful to be able to get that across to young people too, as well as parents. So now on to our main theme this week, a look back at the first half of the James Furman era at the BBFC. Earlier, Caitlin caught up with senior examiner Craig Lapper to quiz him on the early years of James Furman at the board. So this is the latest in our occasional series of interviews about previous secretaries and directors of the BBFC. Uh, I think the last one we did was on Stephen Murphy. The director we're going to talk about this week is James Furman, who um, I think must be maybe one of the longest-serving directors of the board. Yeah, he. Uh, people often think that uh, James was the longest-serving because 24 years is a pretty long stint to be in charge of. Uh, any organisation. In fact, the longest-serving secretary of the board was the first secretary, Joseph Brooke Wilkinson, and he was actually here from 1913 until he died in 1948. So uh, even James didn't manage to outdo his uh, his tenure, and I doubt anyone ever will. Right, but because James was here then from 1975 to 1998, quite yeah. a long span, we've decided to uh, split this into two parts. So today we're just going to focus on the first part of his tenure from 75 to 1984. So he comes to the board in 1975. What was his background before that? Um, well, last time on the Stephen Murphy podcast, we said that Stephen Murphy was the first uh, BBFC secretary to come from a regulatory background. Um, James Furman, by contrast, was the first uh, BBFC secretary to come from a filmmaking background. Uh, James actually spent um, a large part of the 1960s uh, making television programs. Uh, first of all, he worked for 
independent television for ABC and ATV, uh, and then as a freelance director for for the BBC. So he uh, spent a lot of time uh, doing play for today. Uh, making TV dramas like The Plane Makers, Emergency Ward 10. So he'd, he'd, he'd done all sorts of things, which gave him gave him a fair degree of uh, background in, in, in particular, editing skills, but also gave him an insight into, in, into the practices of filmmaking and the practicalities of filmmaking. So that was unusual and uh, probably qualified him particularly well for the job. Uh, interestingly, one of James's own documentaries that he made about religious Freedoms was initially banned and then cut um, for, for for television. So James also had experience not only of filmmaking but of being censored himself. Um, so that probably gave him at least some degree of insight into uh, how uh, you know how filmmakers would respond to that kind of intervention. So in 1975, um, what were the main challenges facing him and the BBFC at the time? Yeah, the, the, the early 70s, um, again, this goes back to, to the stuff we talked about in the Stephen Murphy podcast, um, had seen quite a ty- uh, turbulent time for the BBFC. Um, there have been a number of controversial films coming out, one after the other, Clockwork Orange, Straw Dogs, uh, Last Tango in Paris, The Exorcist, so a lot of very difficult films at a time when there was uh, an increasing feeling of backlash against the perceived permissiveness of the 1960s. So James's predecessor, Stephen Murphy, had got into all sorts of bother with uh, local authorities overruling the board's decisions. So by the time uh, James started at the board, there was certainly a feeling and a perception uh, that the BBFC was, was losing control um, and that local authorities were no longer um, always... Uh, willing to accept the board's decisions which which did cast doubt upon you know the point of the BBFC because that the point of the board is uh, to prevent um, wide variations in what local authorities are doing and offering a sort of one-stop shop to the industry um, so, so so one of the main challenges for James was trying to uh, trying to regain control of that um, the way that James did this was quite um, quite quite interesting he decided that the best way to uh, regain the confidence of local authorities would be what was actually an early example of openness and accountability for the board he, he, he started publishing a monthly bulletin of films in which he would list every film that we'd passed that month what the film was about, what the classification issues were, what cuts we'd made, what legal issues were raised. You know, they were quite detailed, and they had the effect of both reassuring local authorities that the board knew what it was doing, and also um, creating an impression that uh, film classification was often rather boring and tedious, and maybe not something they'd want to get involved in, but also... um, also creating an impression that um, it was actually quite uh, quite a difficult practice and there were a lot of things to weigh up in terms of legislation, public opinion. And, and by creating this impression that it was, you know, alternately uh, tedious and, and complex, um, he, he hoped to regain the trust of the local authorities and make them less willing uh, to intervene in decisions. And in, in practice it did. 
it did have that effect and uh, we did find in the first few years of Jones being here um, that it, it became very unusual for a local authority to overturn one of our decisions. Um, probably the other major change um, problem that James faced when he came here was, was a legal issue. Um, there had been an attempt, as was mentioned in the previous podcast, um, to prosecute Last Tango in Paris for obscenity, and the result of that, um, the result of that case was that um, the courts decided that at, at the moment the Obscene Publications Act didn't even apply to cinema films. Um, that might have seemed. Uh, that might have seemed a good thing, a good outcome from the point of view of the board, uh, because it meant that uh, a film we classified wasn't going to be found obscene. Um, however, the court did rather unhelpfully point out that the far stricter test of uh, common law indecency did apply to films. And as Jones arrived, a film that the GC GLC had passed, called More About the Language of Love, had just been convicted for indecency. Um, this was a big problem because it did mean potentially films the board had passed might be vulnerable uh, und under this test of indecency. Um, James saw that the problem with the test of indecency was that a film didn't have to be taken as a whole. You could take individual moments or scenes out of the film and, and, and convict on that basis. It also didn't make any allowance for any kind of social merit or artistic merit in the film. So James, unusually, because this isn't something the board normally does, James campaigned for the law to be changed so that the Obscene Publications Act would be applied to films in future. Um, uh, he felt that meant that a film would have to be taken as a whole and any merits could be taken into account. And that campaigning was ultimately successful. Yes. The Obscene Publications Act was extended to include film in 1977. Yeah. What effect did that have then? Well, it probably had slightly less effect than Jones had hoped. I think it's fair to say one of one of the um, one of the early films that Jones had to look at when he arrived was Pasolini's Salo, and Jones recognised that it was highly likely that Salo would be found indecent, and the board was unable to pass it for that reason. But he did feel the Obscene Publications Act might provide some some protection for the film. Uh, given its given its uh, cultural and artistic importance, in fact, even once the criminal uh, the criminal law act had extended the concept of obscenity to films, um, the DPP made it fairly clear that he still thought that uh, Salo in particular would be obscene, even under the new test. So, so uh, James probably didn't manage to move things on quite as far as he'd hoped, but uh, nonetheless. Um, when when obscenity was extended to film in 77, James did go back and look at a few contentious decisions from the early 70s that Stephen Murphy had been uh, had been responsible for making. Um, in particular, Last Tango in Paris, uh, the film where there'd been an attempted obscenity prosecution, the board had made one small cut to that film for sexual detail, and James now told the distributor of the film that they could put the cut material back in and show the film uncut because he felt that whereas the original issue had been one of sexual detail which might be considered indecent now the film had to be considered as a whole and its merits taken into account he felt the Obscene Publications Act would protect Last Tango in Paris from successful prosecution so he waived Stephen Murphy's cut to Last Tango um, but 
of course, what you give with one hand, you always take away with the other. And he had a look at um, the film Emmanuel, which had been you know, hugely commercially successful. And James decided that uh, in the case of Emmanuel, there was a, a, a rape scene in the film which had been allowed in 1974. It wasn't very explicit in terms of sexual detail, um, which probably explained why, why it had been passed in the first place. But James said that now that the scene had to be considered within the context of the film as a whole and in terms of what message um, you know, the film and the scene was trying to convey, he decided that this scene, which suggested the central character perhaps enjoys or benefits from, from being raped, was, was the kind of depraving and corrupting uh, message that could raise concerns under the Obscene Publications Act. So um, he recalled the certificate that we'd originally issued to Emmanuel and told the distributor that if it was distributed in future, uh, the rape scene would have to be deleted. That's really interesting that this idea then of um, us making classification decisions where we look at everything completely in context rather than isolating yeah. the issues. That's where this idea comes yeah. from then, is from during James Furman's time. Um, the, certainly the, the degree of emphasis on it. I think probably the board's always looked at context, but up to that point um, th there'd always been a very strong emphasis on, you know, is this scene compliant with current legal standards? Is this scene uh, compliant with our current standards? Um, whereas the Obscene Publications Act, the benefit of it meant that uh, if, if an issue was being treated in a what, what could be described as a serious or responsible fashion. This perhaps gave us um, you know, greater, uh, greater leeway and greater scope for, for permitting something that might not be permitted in another context. So, so yeah, it was, it was very useful uh, in that regard. But obviously always still within the law. Yeah. And I think there were other quite major legal changes that happened uh, in this period we're talking about 1975 to 1984 as well. Yes, um, as well as the extension of the Obscene Publications Act, um, there was also the introduction of a new piece of legislation uh, which still applies today, the Protection of Children Act. Um, that came in in 1978. Um, this was a piece of legislation that specifically prohibited indecent images of children. Um, Again, as with the Obscene Publications Act being extended to film, the board decided that it needed to go back and look at um, films that had been passed previous to this but that might still be uh, in distribution to see whether the existing certificates needed to be altered. Um, one particular case at the time was Taxi Driver, uh, which had been released in... I think 1976, and uh, there's a sequence in that in which uh, Jodie Foster is playing a, uh, an underage prostitute, and after the Protection of Children Act was extended to, uh, not extended to film, was, was, was introduced, um, James decided that a small, a small and rather cautious cut should be made to one scene in Taxi Driver, so, so again the certificate was recalled and, and, and the distributor was told they'd need to make a a change to taxi driver. Probably slightly more of a headache, though. Um, almost at the same time that the Protection of Children Act was introduced, uh, we, we, we had the submission of Louis Mal's new film, Pretty Baby, featuring Brooke Shields as a 12-year-old prostitute, and uh, that, was, that was certainly not ideal timing, uh, and, and accordingly some, uh, some, some, some fairly small... 
and, and, and relatively cautious cuts were made because at the time there was no case law yet on the Protection of Children Act, so, so it was a little unclear how the Act would be applied by juries. So, so certainly in the first few years after 1978, the board took a fairly cautious position which led to cuts in films like uh, Pretty Baby and The Tin Drum and, and Pichot. Um, probably the other thing to say from a legal point of view, and this is all, all, all related to the obscenity issue as well, is around the same time the Williams Committee was looking into the whole issue of film censorship and, and obscenity and whether any changes should be made to the law. Um, most of the recommendations of the Williams Committee were not actually implemented, but, but one issue they did bring up was an issue that had concerned James, which was um, cinema clubs. At the time, there was a, a loophole that allowed members-only cinema clubs to exhibit material without BBFC certificate and also without the permission of local authorities. Um, this led to a situation where certain films... Um, were being shown particularly in Soho, which although not particularly explicit, um, arguably contained um, corrupting messages about rape and sexual violence, which was something James was very concerned about. Um, so uh, in response to the recommendations of the Williams Committee and James's concerns, there was also a further amendment to the law in 1982 with a relatively dry-sounding piece of legislation called the Local Government Miscellaneous Provisions Act, and, and that required that in future um, members-only cinema clubs must only show material that had been approved by the BBFC for club screening or, or by their relevant local authority. And it was actually as a result of that that we introduced the new R18 category, uh, the restricted 18 category, which initially meant that film was suitable for showing only in private members' clubs. So it would be the kind of material that um, you know, wouldn't, wouldn't be welcome or wouldn't play well in a public cinema, even as a, an X or an 18-rated film, but, but, but which was not actually illegal um, and, and therefore was, was suitable for screening in, in, in a private club. Um, building up an impression then of this being a time of quite a lot of major legal changes, um, quite a turbulent time at the board, and moving into the early 80s, I guess, with the advent of home video, that wasn't about to get any less complicated. No, absolutely. Just when uh, just when James and the board thought that they'd, they'd sorted out the issue of... Uh, of you know possible mischievous prosecutions against serious films by extended the, extending the obscene publications act to film and uh, you know and and the introduction of a category for cinema clubs then along comes home video um first in 1979 but really taking off in uh 1981, 1982, and suddenly uh, you, you have a medium where not only is there no restriction because there's no licensing system for video at all, um, but um, that you know the, the, the board has absolutely no control over what's going out there, and and the stuff can go in people's homes and be viewed in theory anyway by anybody, including children. So uh, suddenly, uh, you know, the carpet is. Is, is, is sort of pulled from underneath the board just when it, it felt it was getting on top of, um, you know, the legal situation. Um, in some respects, what happened in the early 80s was very similar to what happened in the 1910s when the board was set up. Um, 
in, in, in the 1910s you had a situation where nobody was licensing cinema films and film distributors couldn't be sure whether their film could be shown in a particular area. Cinema managers could never tell whether whether the police were going to turn up or whether the local authority was going to object to, to a film they were showing. And it was that kind of chaos in the early 1910s that led to the setting up of the BBFC to impose some kind of uh, consistency. So here in the early 1980s, as uh, previously banned films, uncut films, films the board wouldn't pass, started appearing on home video, you had uh, a very similar situation in which a a distributor couldn't be certain whether their film was legal, um, and a video shop also couldn't couldn't be sure whether the films they were stocking were going to, again, result in a police visit. so out of that chaotic situation um, arose an opportunity to, uh, uh, you know, to clarify things uh, for film distributors and, and also for uh, video renters and retailers, uh, but also a massive opportunity for the BBFC um, if, if the kind of powers we had on film were extended to video. Um, initial attempts to control the, the so-called video nasties in the early 80s Um, using, ironically, the Obscene Publications Act, which James had helped to extend to film, um, brought about fairly mixed results. You'd often find certain titles, like The Evil Dead, one court would find them obscene, another court would find them not obscene. So this this actually only added to to the chaos of the situation in in the sort of period 1981-1983. so it was it was it was ultimately concluded after after an unsuccessful self-regulatory um, scheme with which the board had uh, uh, helped um, that the, the Video Recordings Act in 1984 would mean that in future um, any feature films that were being released on video um, and, and most other material being released on video would need to be seen and vetted by by the BBFC before release. And uh, at least this did mean that in future um, distributors could have reasonable certainty that if the board had passed a film that it would be acceptable um, and and that it wouldn't contain any illegal material. And it would also give a degree of protection and reassurance to video retailers and renters that um, they weren't going to be having their stock confiscated by the police. Um, Also, of course, uh, because video nasties were in theory available to children and some of them a minority but some of them were quite attractive to children because you know uh they you know children do tend to enjoy uh you know certain types of forbidden material and some of those kind of you know horror movies um the the introduction of a classification system that would actually mean that videos wouldn't be supplied to underage people anymore um you know helped to help help to remove some of the difficulties presented uh, in that period. And the introduction of the Video Recordings Act marks uh, a new phase really in the history of the BBFC, Um, lots of implications and lots more to talk about so I think that's probably a natural place to end our discussion of the first part of James Furman's tenure. Craig thank you very much for sharing your knowledge with us. That's all we have time for on this episode of the podcast. Don't forget you can still send us your questions or ideas for things you'd like to hear about in future episodes by emailing podcast at bbfc.co.uk. You can also contact us on Twitter via at bbfc. I think I got it, but just in case... 
Tell me the whole thing again. I wasn't listening. 